Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we are going to be discussing how we start role-playing sessions. But before that, let's have a little chat about what's going on, or what has gone on recently. So, I, Matt and I are not long back from Sunny Dundee, or our bros to be precise. Sunny? There was a sun? <laughs> there, there was sunshine. I mean, that was, that was the really freaky part. I mean, after years of having lived in Dundee, I was expecting to go up there and it'd just be grey skies and drizzle and dreek weather. And, and no, 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 it was sunny for almost the whole time we were there. Admittedly, I didn't pop, I didn't pop outside much during my time there <laughs> for some bizarre reason. Uh, you you sampled the Scotch whiskey, I understand, Matt. <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah. Oh, dear God. Yes. Yeah. Matt, Matt has a lesson for us all. Do you want to share your lesson with the class, Matt? Yeah, yeah. Avoid the M6 when driving up to, um, to Dundee. No, that, yeah. that, that is the wrong lesson here. <laughs> follow, follow, your, follow your sat-nav so it doesn't take you down a dirt track. No, I think the real lesson here is... Avoid every do- road work and accident and traffic jam you possibly can on the way up. What, what Matt's trying to build up to is do not try to drink a half bottle of whiskey in three minutes. This leads to badness. But anyway, the reason for all this driving and sunny weather in Dubois and vomiting was was to celebrate the um, the wedding of our friends Ollie and Sarah uh, up in Dundee, and uh, yes, we just wanted to take the opportunity to once again congratulate them uh, on on getting married, and you know thank them for inviting us to the wedding and you know, making it such a wonderful time. Meanwhile. I was in rugby, running a game. <laughs> Sadly, I didn't make it to the wedding. That's but, usually my excuse. Well, I, I, I used your excuse this time, Matt. So uh, I was in rugby with Mike Mason, and we were doing a Call of Cthulhu 7th Ed uh, launch. And, uh, yeah, we ran a couple of games and met a bunch of gamers. And, yep, yeah, that was fun. And whereabouts did that take place in rugby? Yeah, it was run at Shadow Games, their friendly local gaming store in rugby, which... Yeah, I thoroughly recommend. I've not been before, I don't believe, uh, but it's got a couple of gaming rooms at the back and regularly holds role-playing games and board games and so on uh, in the store. Uh, so if you are in the locality of rugby, I recommend you check it out. We were contacted recently on the Google Plus community to answer a question that you posed, I think, in our episode about the seven gears he's got, saying how it would be interesting to play a module based around that kind of situation where you go into some underground complex and meet Sathogwar and have bizarre conversations with him. I'm glad you phrased it like that rather than have a gears put upon you and then just have the GM describe everything at you. <laughs> well, it might happen that way. But apparently there's a Kickstarter for an OSR game entitled Operation Unfathomable. Yes, at the time of release, there are probably only going to be a few days left on the Kickstarter. So if you're listening to this, get in there fast. It's a campaign setting with a whole bunch of weird shit going on, as as is the case in old school D&D games. But this dialed up to 11 with a, a little bit of Clark Ashton Smith flavour to it and a bit, a bit of that, that sort of really gonzo Gargaxian stuff in there as well. Uh, also on the Kickstarter, there's a second edition of Monster Hearts. so yes yes you may remember matt's opinion of uh, this game he has never read or played from the earlier episode we recorded (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> is this true, Matt? I the thing that immediately puts me off and just means I'll never go near it is that it's all about teenagers. Make it about adults, and I'll I'll entertain it. But anyway, yes, there is a new edition of Monster Hearts being kickstarted now. It's not a total revamp or rewrite. There are certain sections of it, apparently, that are being rewritten. A couple of the more um, awkward skins, the ghoul and the ghost, are being rewritten. There's some new GM moves. Uh, and because it's a Kickstarter, there are a few stretch goals in there. So there's, I believe, the last one I saw on there was a, a new sort of setting written by Julia Rellingbow, uh, which looks interesting. So, yeah, yeah, it looks rather cool. And finally, we had a Halloween party recently. Sadly, Matt wasn't in attendance, but myself and Scott were. And, Scott, you turned up with no no costume. I'm always in costume, Paul. Well, you I'm say this. I'm always in costume. He's, he's, you see, if he doesn't dress as Alan Moore, he's going to start losing points in his avatar skill. Yeah, but he, <laughs> did you see the pictures, Matt? I, I saw occasionally. Something about a horse head? No, 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 no. We turned some of the other guests loose on Scott and uh, they braided his beard and tied bones into it. He looked a picture. So I think we'll need a picture of that in the show notes, Scott. <laughs> Apparently we will. <laughs> Let me guess, I'm blaming Vicky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Vicky was so. largely responsible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Hey, this, word, this week's word of the week is brooding. We're looking at it in the adjective sense, which is one, preoccupied with depressing, morbid or painful memories or thoughts. I thought that was a constant state of being. Not mm. a, no. <laughs> There are other ways to be? Yeah. Okay. And two... Cast in a subdued light so as to convey a somewhat threatening atmosphere. And we're back to Dundee again. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but yeah, this is a classic Lovecraftian way of, of just describing a, an oppressive or depressing mood. And that, that's a mood that suffuses a lot of his stories. And yeah, it, it is such a, a delightfully gothic way of, of saying it. And I think, I think this is a sort of an archetypally gothic word that perfectly reflects the, the gothic side of Lovecraft's writing. And Lovecraft used brooding 38 times as an adjective. And yeah, it does very much that kind of um, depressing, morbid, painful memories and the subdued light. I mean, that, that seems very integral to Lovecraft's stories to me. Well, subdued light's something I kind of encourage at home. It fades my books less. <laughs> And it seems to sum up the recording studio at the moment as well. <laughs> we've got the curtains drawn, we've got one little energy-saving bob going, and it is a brooding atmosphere. So now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word brooding in his writings. From the Dunwich Horror. Dr Armitage, associating what he was reading with what he had heard of Dunwich and its brooding presences, and of Wilbur Waitley and his dim, hideous aura that stretched from a dubious birth to a cloud of probable matricide, felt a wave of fright as tangible as a draught from the tomb's cold clamminess. There's a weather report you don't see outside Dunwich. A cloud of probable matricide. (laughs) And from the shadow over Innsmouth. The sight of such endless avenues of fishy-eyed vacancy and death, and the thought of such linked infinities of black brooding compartments given over to cobwebs and memories and the conqueror worm 
Startup vestigial fears and aversions that not even the stoutest philosophy can disperse. And finally, from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. And vast infinities away, past the gate of deeper slumber, and the enchanted wood, and the garden lands, and the Serenarian sea, and the twilight reaches of Inganok. The crawling chaos Nialathotep strode brooding into the onyx castle atop unknown Kadath, in the cold waste, and taunted insolently the mild gods of earth, whom he had snatched abruptly from their scented revels in the marvellous sunset city. And on to our main topic, how to start off a game. Well, first of all, I guess, let's define what we mean by starting off a game. It's Is not it not self-explanatory, Scott? <laughs> no. how we start a game. No, no, it's not, because we're going to talk a little bit about what we do before the start of the game, how we prepare for it, um, you know, how we discuss what we're going to do with the players, um, and then, yes, at what we actually do to start the game itself. So there's quite a lot to it, really. Yeah, there is a lot to it. We sat down and we started discussing an episode talking about how we actually approach running a game and what things we draw upon at the table. And we actually came up with quite a lot of things that we wanted to talk about. So we decided to split this topic up. So we've got this episode about starting games. We're going to do an episode in the future about how we kind of run the body of the game and things we do to, to embellish and keep that going and... Uh, and then one about endings, we think. It's a trilogy. It is indeed a trilogy. <laughs> Let's start off then by talking about what we do before the game itself. Well, before you have a game, you need some players. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you've got to have something you want to run. Uh, sometimes that's just a, you know, sometimes that's an in-depth scenario that you've read or a campaign that we've discussed in previous episodes or whatever. But sometimes it's just a game book and you hit the game running and improvise stuff. And we'll talk about that. Um, but obviously, you know, you need to have pitched the idea to players and have a bunch of people that have got on board. So what do you do to sort of pitch that to your players? Well, it depends an awful lot on, on where and when that's happening. Uh if you're a member of a game club, as, as we are, there is a formal pitching process where we put a, a short description up on the club website and then we stand up in front of everyone uh, when the voting starts and just explain what the game is and try to sell everyone on it. If you're at a convention, there's going to be an element of that too, but it's probably just a description you put up on the sign-up sheet that describes what you're running, what the the general premise of the scenario is, what system you're using, that kind of thing. But most often, I guess, it's going to be you and your friends sitting around saying, you know, something like, you know, oh, I've, I've just picked up Call of Cthulhu, you know, I, I want to try running this, does anyone want to give it a go? You, sometimes it may be more in-depth than that. It could be, I've picked up Masks of Neolithotep, it's this epic campaign. You know, if we're going to try running it, well, playing it, it's going to take, you know, maybe about, you know, six months or five months or whatever to play. It's optimistic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> are, are you up for this? You know, here's the basic premise of it. It's sort of world-spanning, two-fisted adventure, uh, you know, deadly dangers, probably a fairly high body count, lots of, you know, gruesome horror. You know, does this sound like your kind of thing? Do you want to invest this kind of time in it? If everyone says yes, you have a game. 
I think setting those expectations is important, letting people know what kind of commitment you're asking them to make. Are we doing a one-off thing just to sample the game and if we like it, we'll carry on? Or am I being asked to join in with something that's going to run for the next five years? That's quite a big difference and I want to know. Yeah, I mean, personally, if I were trying out a new game like that, I'd probably want to play a one-shot of it just to see what it's like before I commit to playing an entire campaign. And we've talked about some of these things in previous episodes. So in episode 88, we talked about how to become familiar with written scenarios and campaigns. And in episode 52, we looked at research. Mm -hmm. But it's not just the scenario you've got to be familiar with. Someone, at least, preferably the GM, has to know the rule system pretty well. And depending on the kind of game you play, you may want to make sure that the players are thoroughly familiar with the rules ahead of time. It's not so important, say, with something like Call of Cthulhu, where you're not worried about optimised builds or anything like that. But for something like D&D or Exalted or whatever, where that is a vital part of the game and people really need to know the mechanics to play it in an optimal way, then then you have to make sure that the players are willing to learn those rules ahead of time. I've been thinking especially about this for a um, thinking of the local MK RPG club. For the next long block, I'm planning on offering a game of uh, Mage the Awakening and thinking that if anyone hasn't read um, read the rule book for that, that's going to be a very hard game to, um, to set up and get them running straight away with. Um, one thing that I used to do with Unknown Armies is that I used to put together a cheat sheet of the rules that could spread over about four pages that tried to almost bullet point rules to say this is what happens when you need to roll this skill, this is how flip-flops work, etc, etc, and have it as a resource that I'd dot two or three of these down on a table and say if you're not familiar with the rule set, if you want to have a quick glance over that, that gives you an overview of how it works, or if you want to refer to it in the course of play, there it is. I mean, to me, there's an important thing here that you were talking about, Scott, of setting expectations. I think... It's important to note that as the GM, mostly you're going to be one pitching the game and saying, oh, I want to run this, do people want to play? And I think it's incumbent on you to know the rules really well Mm. and to know the game really well because your players are going to come to the table with a level of enthusiasm. But that's going to start to peter out if they find that, oh, this guy doesn't really know what he's doing and, oh, we're having to twiddle our thumbs while they look up rules and so on. Usually, I think I would expect my players to be less enthusiastic about the game than I am. So, you know, I, I feel I've kind of got to, to to do that legwork to kind of make sure that the players are... It's made easy for the players. And I think you've also got to be quite good at, at teaching the rules to the players as they go along and, you know, answering questions and supporting them during that learning process. Because I, mean, I don't know about anyone else, I'm not especially good at learning rules by sitting down and reading them in a book. I, I tend to have to go through a fairly long process of, of digesting them and making my own notes and internalising them all to make sure that I actually know them well enough not to sit there and have to look stuff up during play which i absolutely hate as a player you know i i like having a gm who can sort of remind me every now and then you know this is what you roll here you know this is how damage works you know this is how mm. the social combat system works here i don't ever want to feel like i'm floundering around and i think you know when i'm gming i i i, I like to take the time to explain these things as they come up. Particularly, I mean, for example, in the convention game, which is obviously a very special case, you're quite often running a game that someone is completely unfamiliar with. And 
it then becomes uh, incumbent upon you to make sure that they understand what they're doing at every stage. And I think... I, I think you know learning how to to teach like that is a vital part of GMing. Well, un- unless of course you know you've got a, an established group, you're playing the same game over and over again, in which case people will know stuff. But if you're shifting systems or playing with different people, then yes, you really have to learn how to teach the game. Mm-hmm. I know this worked particularly well. Um, I mean, I think the very first time that we met Scott was that setting up the the actual physical play space um, adds a lot to a game as well. I remember walking up this very dark house in um, in New Bradwell, going through the front door, hearing chanting deeper in the house, red lights, and then the sense of uh, smoke and incense uh, kind of wafting through the air, <laughs> thinking, am I going to leave here with both my kidneys? Is this a really good idea? <laughs> so you didn't bother setting it up in any special way, Scott? Oh, I mean, no, that was no, just no. the normal the, the, ambience, the... really. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to try to defend myself here and and say that that's inaccurate, but no, <laughs> that is pretty much what my house is like. <laughs> I mean, in a lesser respect, I mean, when we get together on a Thursday evening, I haven't done too much in terms of preparation, but I just you know move the chairs around because I think okay, I know like whoever's going to be the the GM, they want a kind of a seat where they can be sat and be facing the the players. We don't tend to play around a table as such. You know, when we're playing at my house, we're sort of playing on armchairs. So, but I try to sort of, you know, set the chairs out in a certain way, consider the lighting. So, try not to just have harsh overhead lighting, you know, to have something a bit more subdued. Sometimes, uh, I mean, I ran a game which was set, set on a whaling ship. So, I, I tried to get like a, a loop of kind of ocean background sounds playing in the background. I mean, if you if you can hook on something like that that's going to work well, then you know that that's all that adds to the atmosphere. That's not always possible, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with the lighting, I mean, for example, when I was running Cult, you know, that, that game that Matt was just mentioning, I used a lot of candle lighting for that as well. I didn't use any artificial lighting; it was all candle light. Mm-hmm. And uh, for sounds, yeah. I, don't tend to use sound effects. I know some GMs like doing that. I personally, I find it very distracting to try to queue up sound effects, and unless you have the right ones at the right stage, they get quite distracting. But I did very carefully put together playlists of kind of weird and creepy music to try to build that atmosphere. I went out of my way to find stuff that didn't have lyrics, so it wouldn't be distracting, or at least you know where there were lyrics, they weren't in English, or they were chanted uh, so that they wouldn't catch the ear. And then played it at a level that was just soft enough to be heard, but not enough to actually mask what people were saying. There are a few recordings that are published by various publishers, including one that came out with 7th edition called Mm. Cthulhu, that is kind of there for background atmosphere music. So, you know, they're all pretty cool. Uh, for myself, when I, especially when I run games at conventions, I, te- I tend to do set up religiously in a sense. I try to set the room up in a, in a similar fashion every time that I've got a corner that I occupy and then make sure that each seat around the room is someone that's got a good angle on me that no one's having to turn their head 90-odd degrees or so to be able to see me. No one's sat next to me. Um, I have a table set out in the middle where I have the sheets laid out to begin with so as they walk in, they see everything set up straight off the, um, straight off the bat. And also the cocktail bar in the background as well. So, <laughs> and, and the occasional catered meal as well. Oh yeah, that that too. Yeah, and then, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe draw the draw a line at the cocktail bar. But I don't think I'm going to go that far. <laughs> 
Also, thinking about the music for a moment, just before we move on to the next topic, uh, one of our listeners shared uh, some music recently. That you know, he's he's a musician and puts stuff up on Bandcamp fairly regularly. Uh, Brian Lavelle has done some fantastic atmospheric ambient music that is creepy as fuck, and I think would be absolutely perfect for a lot of games. So I'll try to put a link to that in the show notes. Session zero. Session zero is, it's not something every group does, but it's that session where you get together to create characters, to establish some of the parameters of the game, to generally talk about the kinds of things that might happen. It's, it's the one before you actually start the game itself, and you're putting all the pieces in place as a group. But this is not necessarily a whole session in itself, right? I mean, it can be a session or it can be the 20 minutes or whatever that you spend generating characters or giving out the characters and, and getting into it. Could it could be, or it could even be multiple sessions. I, yeah, I'm sure Matt will share some stories in a moment of uh, when we played Dresden Files. Yeah, we've all, I think we've all been down there of just spending several sessions creating characters to games which don't run many more sessions after that. <laughs> But before we get into that aspect of things, one of the most important things you can do during Session Zero is something we touched upon briefly before, which is setting that shared expectation. This isn't the point at which you're pitching the game or explaining what the game system is or anything like that. It's the point at which you, as a group, are agreeing things like the general tone of the game and what's appropriate. Yeah, so if you're running a kind of crazy two-fisted action game, you want everybody to know that. And if it's going to be a gritty, very grim situation with very kind of real-world characters, then again, we all need to be on the same page with that. And indeed, there is a thing called the Same Page Tool, published by Chris Chin. Quite an in-depth mechanic that has a list of questions which asks things of the players, such as if a player character turns against all the other player characters is this acceptable or not yeah and you know to some people in some games that wouldn't be they wouldn't be into that at all these are things i think that wouldn't necessarily even occur to some players that that would happen in a game um so it's quite a good thing to run through but we're not going to go through that no. whole thing in depth that we can certainly provide a link to it yeah and there are a couple of other interesting things in there like whether or not the players are playing to win or whether a, you know a failure is is an interesting part of the game uh whether failed roles should result in harsh consequences or whether you know the character should be able to shrug off damage and, stuff and whether like we're that. playing a party or not because yeah. there's a lot of expectation in many role-playing games and certainly you know historically this has always been the expectation that you're playing a cohesive group with a shared aim you know your classic D&D party um, but a lot of games nowadays and indeed some of the Call of Cthulhu games we've played you're actually playing almost against the other player characters mm -hmm. you've got conflicting agendas and yeah, there's one instance I can think of a one game where I think that having that chat to begin with would have helped a lot that um, one situation we played in a LARP involved effectively two different groups, and it felt very much like two different games being played at the same time. And I know there could have been a feeling of certain resentment that, oh, well, all the plot's happening with the other group in the other room, we'll just sit here and twiddle our thumbs then, shall we? Whereas I think if you'd had that uh, talk about, well, are, you, are you happy with separate groups, there probably would have been some voicing of concerns at that point. And I think sometimes people, because of that kind of expectation in the back of their mind of 
party play or you know your character is your character and i don't want to do too much to harm that there's an expectation that oh i mustn't kind of fight too hard against the other player characters so if it is a kind of pvp game i think you need to sort of say that get that on the table and i've certainly run one or two scenarios where i've said to the players at the outset if you feel you do want to kill one of the other player characters just let me make that clear it's not going to wreck the game this is built into this scenario I'm kind of anticipating that. So by all means, do whatever you want to do. That would almost be like an encouragement for me. Is right. when, <laughs> when do I do it? When can I kill someone? Come on. <laughs> but if it's built into the game, that's fine. But if you're sat there sort of thinking, oh, I really want to shoot Scott's character, you know, as, as one always does, um, then, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to kind of, kind of metagaming in your head thinking, oh, I hadn't better do that because that will take Scott out of the game. But, as long as it's just my character, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, another very useful thing to discuss up front is what's become known as lines and veils. Simply put, I mean, this is just a discussion about what things are and aren't acceptable in the game. So a line is, you know, basically a line you will not cross. Something that you absolutely do not want in the game. So you may up front say that, you know, I am uncomfortable with anything involving child abuse or sexual assault uh, or even, you know, things like harm to animals. This this will upset me in the game. This will take me out of it. I do not want any depiction of this. Yeah. And what about veils? Veils is where you sort of draw a veil over things. You know, it's that fade to black moment. So it can be, you know, something along the lines of, yes, I'm happy to have, you know, characters in this game having sex with each other. I just don't want it described at the table. There is a tricky thing, though, the lines and veils, I find, because... It's sometimes hard to anticipate what might crop up. It has to be, the onus probably has to be on the players yeah. to sort of say, I'm not happy with this particular thing. But yeah, that's that's a difficult one because they don't know where the scenario is going to go and they don't always recognise what things might create a reaction in them. Yeah, I've seen people get surprised uh, at some of the things that have come up. That they In didn't realise Scott. <laughs> <laughs> that they didn't realise would stir up the kind of intense feelings that that they thought you know that, that actually happened. Also, I mean, as a GM, if you're pitching a game to someone, if you've got a scenario that you've designed, it can be or one that that, that you've bought and you want to run for the players. You don't necessarily want to warn everyone about what's in here. You don't uh, want to give spoilers, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, if there's some big surprise halfway through that involves, you know, say the death of a child, you don't necessarily want to advertise that up front. Mm-hmm. It might be a major spoiler. Yeah. And you're talking about an emotional reaction. Well, I kind of want emotional reactions. And sometimes I want, to a degree, negative emotional reactions, but I don't actually want somebody to be, you know, actually upset. You know, if it, if it kind of reverberates with them and um, creates a, a, a jolt or an emotional reaction, then that's, that's kind of cool. Like I say, I think it's a hard line to draw sometimes. It's a danger when running any adult or particularly horrific game that there is a very good chance you're going to hit a pothole like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, when you're setting out to punch people's buttons, sometimes the wrong buttons are going to get punched. So maybe the thing also to sort of say is that if you feel that's a potential hazard in your game, if you know there are things which are particularly provocative in your scenario, maybe say to people, you know, if there's anything in this that makes you feel really uncomfortable, do be, you know, happy to say and do be kind of on the lookout for people feeling, um, you know, 
uncomfortable or whatever but as we say it's a kind of a, a tricky area well i mean the difficult thing is people aren't always comfortable about speaking up when that happens and there was a technique mm. that I've, I've seen come out of some american conventions uh, i can't remember who developed it but it's this thing called the x card and you know it seems a bit controversial because i've seen some people mocking it as well which i don't think is desperately fair but the idea is if something comes up at the table that you know makes you desperately uncomfortable that is ruining the game for you but you don't want to explain it and you don't want to you know sort of draw a, a lot of attention to yourself you, you have this card just with a big letter x on it and you hold it up and at that point you know everyone knows that you know this is crossing a line for you you know can you please back off but you don't necessarily want to explain why hmm. one process that we've done at the game table which is i think it's colloquially referred to now as world burning is to sit down and <laughs> as i kind of think of it set a, uh, put a match to an atlas um is to define the setting that you're going to be playing in set your um, not so much your boundaries in terms of theme and tone but kind of the boundaries of your map so that you know what's there where it is and to some extent elements key places but it can be people as well it can be events history literally building that world together so then you can then burn it down in play <laughs> and one, one of the cool things about that is you can come to the table without preparation Usually these games that rely on world burning have a set structure. So it's not just that you sit down and make some crazy stuff up. I mean, it is, but there's, there's a structure and advice and a, a procedure that one goes through. So you kind of ad agree that, okay, well, it's a fantasy world. Is it kind of high fantasy? What, what things exist in the world? Who are the most powerful people? And there's, there'll be a series of questions that you'll go through. And collaboratively, you'll kind of generate this this setting which i think is is quite a a fun thing if you you know if it's handled well it can be great fun and it can really inspire everybody and mean everybody's kind of got a say and an input into the what's happening in, in a lot of in a lot of instances where i've done it it's actually turned out to be a really fun process as well and in some cases actually funner than the game that, that, that follows that i remember with the dresden files game that were um, that we played when we were doing some of the play testing for that 27 hours that took us. Well, what? to be fair, we, we really got into the world burning with that. So the idea in the Dresden Files is you choose a city and um, you make this your, your base for the campaign and then flesh it out as the world burning stage. So being based in Milton Keynes, we decided to set it in Milton Keynes. And... Our world burning for this involved, uh, well, it's actually following the process that's outlined in the book. It it basically involves laying out interesting locations, real world locations in the city, finding out um, a bit about their history, finding ways to put a supernatural spin on some of them, or you know, ways in which this hidden occult world could interact with them in interesting ways. And we got so carried away in the research for this. I mean, we ended up learning a lot about Milton Keynes. We went on field trips. Um, you know, between us, we went out to various locations and scouted them out. Did dodgy things to the concrete cows? <laughs> mm. Yeah, but we do that every time we go past them. <laughs> 
But as a GM, I, I love stuff like this because it means by the time we actually get round to the first session of the game proper, I've got all the stuff I can use that I know that the players are invested in mm. because they've come up with a lot of them. I, I will then go off generally and add other layers to things, add additional secrets, um, you know, other bits of backstory, you know, put some hooks in there and some, some events that will tie in with the whole thing just so that I know that I can take this, this situation and then turn it into a game but you know having that much raw material there is inspirational so obviously an alternative to world burning is well the alternative is more of the standard role-playing session that most of us would be familiar with where one person is the gm and they've either got it you know maybe just a few notes on a piece of paper or the other extreme a whole massive campaign book all plotted out and read and researched Either way, they're the one coming with the knowledge in their head and presenting it to the players. The next thing that we'd kind of look at is, you know, the players are given a... Either they're given pre-generated characters or they've got to create characters. If they're going to do the creating of the characters, then they need something on which to design those characters. They need some guidance as yeah. to what the world is. Maybe what the scenario's about, you know, the things they're going to find out in the first two or three minutes of the scenario, it's probably fine to tell them that uh, in advance or to tell them, you know, this is a scenario. Well, it starts in Boston in a library, but actually we want people on this that are going to be good outdoors people that, that know about, you know, the wilds and they're going to be going off into um, Antarctica on an expedition. So make sure you design your characters around that because that, those are the kind of people that are going to get engaged with this. We did actually go in a little bit into this this whole pre-gen versus creating your own characters um, decision all the way back in episode one. It was the first thing we ever talked about on this podcast. I Holy crap, we're full hesita- circle! <laughs> I hesitate to recommend episode one to people yeah. too, too quickly, though, Scott. But... It is one of our most downloaded episodes, is it? disturbingly enough. Okay. <laughs> the shed had that kind of uh, really rustic appeal. <laughs> yeah, yes. We, we've come a long way since then. A mile, mile down the road, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that far. Once the players have got some kind of idea as to what characters will be suitable for the campaign, what will be useful, then my preference is to have everyone create the characters together. I mean, not only is it a bit of a social activity, but it it almost ties in or you know corresponds a bit with the world burning aspect of it, in that. For an interesting campaign, you want to have relationships there between those characters. And sure, I mean, there are all sorts of other ways you can impose those relationships, but I think the most interesting way generally is for the players just to decide on them during character creation. You know, sort of, right, you know, uh, Matt, your character and mine were rivals at university. You know, we've been rivals since then professionally. You know, there's a grudging respect between us, but we're always looking to one-up each other. And then um, I look at Paul to say, yeah, it is good to shoot him whenever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, if you're a professor, then you know, that can just spark off an idea in my head and i think oh well, maybe i'm one of your students yeah you know whatever so um so it provides links so my preference would be uh, well what i tend to use is either pre-gens where i'm just giving them out to people and they've almost certainly got a bit of background with them for them to read and maybe some comments about how they know the other player characters or to sit down and do a character generation at the table. And I, the games I run, I would generally, you know, look to do that maybe fairly quickly. 
And some games have that baked in. I remember at the club not too long ago, uh, Ollie Palmer ran a game of Lamentations of the Flame Princess where he'd borrowed a mechanic from uh, Tenra Bancho Zero, uh, which was this table that established relationships between characters. And, you know, it could be things like, you know, secretly in love with or rivals. or One of them was, I want to destroy them. (laughs) So we each rolled on this. And the table, you know, these relationships aren't symmetrical. So, you know, it could be that, you know, your character is passionately in love with mine, Matt, and and that my, you know, what I rolled is, you know, I will annihilate him. Story of my life. (laughs) (laughs) The the other, one other key advantage I found with uh, having learnt the hard way of getting everyone to do character gem around the table is rather than saying, right, here's the premise, here's such and such, you've all got the rule books, go away, gen up a character and bring it to me for next week is that if it was like a vampire game, for instance, you turn up with everyone playing a Brujar combatant or a uh, yes. traditional Cthulhu game of everyone's a librarian or private eye. Right, so it encourages yeah. more diversity because oh. they kind of see, oh, somebody's already doing that thing, I'll try and do something different. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. When, when you're playing games that have got niche protection or character classes or whatever, yeah, that is absolutely vital. Mm-hmm. So I think by explaining the premise of the game and saying what it's about you can kind of advise your players to create characters that are going to want to engage with the plot. Because if they just create a bunch of random PCs, you know, what, what reason is them they're going to be for them to engage with the scenario? And this depends on your scenario. If it's, you know, a scenario that takes place in a bus journey going from Boston to New York, well, it could just be a random bunch of PCs. They just happen to be all on the bus at the same time. Fine. But if it ties around a a house and a family and some of them are members of the family and others you know it's their boss and somebody who lives down the street well why would they all be at the house so Mm. you need to kind of think what kind of people would engage with this scenario and one of the things that we got like in call of cthulhu is the idea of investigator groups so it might be, you know, the Occult Research Society or the, uh, the the Band of Brothers from World War One or whatever that, you know, they all know each other and there's a friendship group. So something that hangs player characters together that would latch into the scenario. Of course. I mean, the other thing you could do uh, is is look at that the other way around. When you're talking about, you know, maybe it is, you know, a few family members, a friend, uh, uh, a work colleague or whatever, which is find some situation that would actually bind these characters together in the first place. So perhaps, you know, there's a dinner party round at the house, the other people there is the guests and something, you know, really weird happens that affects all of them. They have to band together to deal with it. And I think sometimes also put that onto the players themselves, not on the player characters, put it on the players and say, okay, well, you've created these characters. What are their relationships? And why would you engage with the scenario and get them to come up with the reason? Because I think they'll feel more invested in that reason than if you just tell them a reason. And another thing you can possibly do at this stage is something we touched on back in episode 59, where we talked about open and closed games. To define this, uh, an open game is one where the the players share whatever secrets their characters have with each other at this stage. And a closed game is one where, you know, if your character has a secret, you as a player keep it secret and let it come out during play. And depending on the kind of game you want, I mean, either one is a perfectly appropriate choice. In a sort of investigative horror-type game like Call of Cthulhu, I think closed games where, where characters have secrets are probably more powerful things. 
I generally try to walk a, uh, a line between the two. I'll have everything set up as a secret at the start, such as in a pre-gen saying, right, you are possessed by a Shan, you, your objectives are X, Y, and Z, or you're a Githian agent, blah, blah, blah. And make sure that the players keep that knowledge to themselves. But they'll narrate everything in the open at the game table, because it's quite fun watching some of the players go, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> well, why the hell are you doing that? And then, yeah. no reason. And if there are secrets and you want it to be kept secret, you know, do make that very clear to the players. Yeah, if you're doing pre-gens and you're handing them out to the players and you're expecting this to be a closed game, yeah. <laughs> so, like make robots, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing I will do, actually, is if there is secret stuff on the sheet, or not even secret, but I will try and make sure that everybody has kind of got what's on the background if it's pre-gens that, that i've kind of given them so i'll say you know have you read your backgrounds yeah perhaps even point at the sheet and say do you understand the implications of this and i'll also say if anybody wants to ask me any questions at this point you know we can step out of the room and speak in private yeah so i think or you know if, if that crops up then just let me know and we can um if you've got any questions about your character or what they're they're doing at this point i'd say that in terms of background that i'll give to a player I tried to keep it fairly light. So maybe at most, maybe half a page of text. Because I find as a player, I don't really absorb all that stuff too well. Mm. You know, there, there's stuff going on. It's maybe a new game. Maybe I don't really know the other people. And then I'm given a page of stuff to read. I don't really know about the scenario yet. And then there's there's all this stuff. And I don't know how much of it's going to come into the game and maybe other people are talking. It's hard to absorb a lot of information at that point, I think. So I want something maybe bullet-pointed or just, just a few paragraphs that, that tell me about my play, my character. I, I think that worked especially well in a recent um, game that you play-tested with us, Paul, where we had a selection of characters that we could choose from, and some of them had a, a little bit more background than others. Some of them had very short ones. I was glad I just picked up one that said, you're the cabin boy. That was all it had. <laughs> and one of my favourites actually comes from a different game, which is Sorcerer. And Sorcerer, I think, does something very, very clever here. It's very simple and it's it's not you know wildly different from what other games do. But it was the first published game that I'd seen that that actually did this, which is this idea of a kicker. So a kicker is the, sort of the last part of your character creation, and it's. Something that has immediately happened to your character or that your character has done, a situation in which he or she finds themselves uh, that is demands a resolution. It cannot be ignored. And that this, this is sort of the problem or the situation that will define your character's actions for the rest of the game. And is and, that generated by the GM or the player? Well, that's the important thing. This is created by the player. Again, the GM you know, will probably spend some time saying what the world is and what appropriate characters and so on are. But you then, as a player, define that, that one motivating action, that, that, that scene at the start of the film that you know, pushes the hero into the limelight and gives them a problem that needs to be solved. I think it demands an example. So You've just come back from your latest expedition. Uh, you know, there are some boxes that have been shipped back containing the, the various uh, specimens that you killed or the various animals you killed. 
And you know, you open up some of the boxes, and there are creatures in there you just plain do not remember killing. That you know they're strange, they're unidentifiable. The kicker is that you know, you know as you're looking at these, trying to work out what the hell happened, there is a knock on the door, and there is a strange person there saying, "Yes, we need to talk about this." <laughs> Because the important thing about these kickers is they, they give just enough for your character to hook on to, you know, something that you're really interested in. But the secrets of what they relate to, where they're going to lead to and so on, are all defined by the GM after that. I'd go back to what we were saying about giving out pre-gens. One thing that I would do often is not actually give out the pre-gens and talk to the players before I give them anything. Because what I find is that once you've given people paper with writing on it, some of them will read it, even if you are trying to talk to them, and you just know that they're not actually listening to what you're saying, they're reading what's on the page. And once you've given them those sheets of paper, there's nothing you can do about that. Uh, I mean, you can tell them to put them down, ask them to put them down, not look at them, but, you know, that won't always work. (laughs) So... Yeah, I tend to, you know, talk to the players while they've got just empty space in front of them because I know then that, you know, we can actually talk without any distraction. And now let's move on to what we do when we start the first session itself. Well, I guess the first thing I would ask is if, if it's Call of Cthulhu that I'm running, I'd say, have everybody played Call of Cthulhu or, you know, have some of you not played it? You know, you usually get a range of responses there. So some people will say, yeah, yeah, I've been playing it since, you know, 1953. Or other people will be like, yeah, no, I've never played it. I've never played a role-playing game, ever. If they've been so, playing it since 1953, I want their time gates back. <laughs> <laughs> so with a game like Call of Cthulhu, I'll usually just give a brief introduction once I've given out the character sheets or they've created their characters if they're creating their characters then that's a kind of a platform for explaining some of the mechanics you know those are your characteristics those are your skills you know other games those are your traits whatever if you're giving them pre-gens then you can just give a, a brief overview of the of the mechanics that are on the sheet uh, not really saying how to use them so much as sort of saying okay well that's how big you are that's how strong you are that's how clever you are you know you're good at those skills or those are your traits or those are your motivations or whatever the game is but when it comes to mechanics i tend to sort of just say where possible okay well when things crop up we'll address them you know, when it comes to making a skill role or a combat role or an investigation role whatever it might be or spending points or whatever then We'll, we'll address that in, in the game. When I do mechanics, I try to focus on what you're going to roll for and how you roll it, what the numbers mean on the sheet. And then, particularly in Cthulhu, I think the only other things I'd mention besides doing pulls, well, we'll address this when it comes up, which I always do with combat because that takes a little bit more time to explain, are things like pushing, um, pushing rolls and spending luck. So if they roll and they fail, what options have they got? And then leave it at that. Yeah. Just so they know the bare basics. Yeah, so I'll tend to do that once they've you know, once they've made a couple of skill rolls, I'll say, Well actually you've got an option here. You know, and yeah. then kind of explain it, you know, at that at that point. And I think it serves a couple of functions. One is that, you know, that player that's played for years, they don't want to sit and listen to you explain all the rules, they're just gonna get bored. And second, that player that's never role played before they don't really want to be given this massive information dump, which is probably going to turn them off and think, oh my lord, this sounds really complicated. They just want to get into playing a story and have fun. And they'll be quite willing to accept some rules along the way. 
This goes for setting as well. I think we have it easy when we're running Call of Cthulhu because you can say, it's the modern day, it's Milton Keynes or it's New York. And even if they'd never been to New York, they can kind of, they've seen it on TV. Or even if it's Antarctica, yes, you have to kind of do a bit more work to get that setting across and portray it. Where if it's on, if it's some sort of fantasy land, well, that can kind of mean all sorts of things. And then if there's political, I don't know, trade negotiations going on, <laughs> obviously that's got to be explained in depth as we found in The Phantom Menace. But, you know, you don't want too big an information dump at the start there. It needs to be not quite an elevator pitch, but it needs to be something that's easy to, easily digestible. Well, I mean, you say that that doesn't apply so much in Call of Cthulhu because it's the real world. I do say that, Scott. But, I mean, we've played a couple of games with Matt recently where they've taken place in very specific historical settings. <laughs> and, I mean, you, you've started out each one with about a 10 minute history lesson. Yeah, because in those particular instances, I think because they revolved quite intrinsically with what was going on at the time that players in this case really have to know at least some degree of what's mm. happening otherwise i could throw a phrase out like um, using one example set in 1890 south africa i could throw out the phrase outlander and probably get a few blank stares but without realizing that it's kind of derogatory term that's saying you're, you're a an alien you're a foreigner coming into our country and basically plundering our shit that it's, you need to explain a bit about what is happening so that people know the context of what's going on at the time. Yeah. And make, making it an interactive process as well yeah. with people jumping in and asking questions as well also helps because other people might have the same question. Yes. And maybe sort of saying, you know, these are the key points you need to know for the game uh, because some of it's just colour, but some of it's like really crucial stuff. So maybe highlighting that to people if, if that's appropriate. Some scenarios will give you read aloud text. <sighs> box text which you know that's fine i tend to sort of if i were giving it to somebody else to run and say here's the box text you can either read it like that like it is or more i would encourage you to you know read it yourself and then uh put it in your own words to the yeah. players but again as with the rules description and the setting description i i think even uh, when you're introducing locations that first location or whatever again keep that succinct i mean the general wisdom for stuff like this is provide three memorable or pertinent details don't overwhelm the players with you know describing every single blade blade of grass or leaf in the area you are not fucking Tolkien. I was just about to say, leave that to him. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, give them what they need to know. Give them just enough. I, what I like doing is giving a few different uh, sensory details, so, you know, describing you know, maybe if there's an unusual smell to the place, or what the ambient temperature is like, or something like that, as well as, you know, what they can see. I would go back here to what we were discussing earlier. I think sometimes there's an expectation that here you are, we're going to play this game. Uh, be good if you've read the backstory book, you know, that it's based on, or good if you've read all of this setting material, all these 10 Wikipedia articles before we actually play next Thursday. Yeah, again, as like I was saying earlier, as Keeper, you've probably read all those things and you're enthusiastic about it. Don't expect all your players to have read that oh, stuff God, no. or to commit to doing that. Because a lot of them, they're going to turn up at the table, you're going to say, did you read all that stuff? Not really. I didn't get chance. When, when you say a lot of them, what you mean to say is all of them. Yeah. I, I don't think I have ever seen a game where the GM has given the players homework where anyone has done any of it. 
Actually, no, the exception, I think, was uh, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, where there's an opportunity potentially to read a fairly important handout or fairly important artefact in-game that is Mm. also a real-world book. Guess what? I still haven't read it, and I'm running that campaign in a few months. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, everyone apart from Matt actually read that. (laughs) Something else that I'll do here as the GM or the Keeper is measure where the actual gameplay starts. Mm. So there's things that you can be presenting to the players and some people are going to want to jump in immediately and kind of start interacting with it. But sometimes what you're saying as GM is actually presenting the situation to the players and it's really up to you as GM where the action starts. So let's say that your player group, for some reason, you know, it centers around a bank robbery and your players, you know, your player character group is a group of bank robbers. And, you know, you describe the scene, you know, they've just entered the bank and then they kind of jump, the players sort of jump in and sort of say, oh, we look around, are there any security guards? Well, yeah, there are security guards. Okay, well, I'm just going to check it out today and then we're going to go away and um, do it another day. And you're like, oh hold on, yeah, but that's that's not how I want to start the game. So Because I want to start the game where the bank teller sounds the alarm. Well, that's fine. You can do that because you're the kind of director of it. So you can you can describe them. Okay, well, you just entered the bank. You've One of you's um, pulled out a gun. You've uh, shot the shotgun into the ceiling uh, and you've uh, gone up to the bank teller and um, slammed your, uh, the butt of your gun on the, on the desk and pointed it in her face. And then uh, you hear an alarm sounding now go so you you can kind of direct that point where the action starts and i think this is quite a powerful technique in general we'll um revisit this i think in the next episode where we're talking about the continuation of the game the the, the middle of the game talk about it in the context of scene framing and and how to sort of start scenes at particular points and know when to end them and at that bang like it's like the starting gun of the race the players are completely in control of their what their player characters are doing. Yes. But before that bang, you as GM are setting everything up and dictating what they've just done. I think my default mode, as I was uh, looking down the list that we've come up with, tends to uh, fall into the uh, what we've called slowly building tension. I like to start off with a fairly low-key beginning rather than go for a big memorable bang, but gradually think of if it was an opening shot in a film what you're going to see you're going to see instances i've used um, the lobby of a police station or gather around a breakfast table um, in a bed and breakfast or an office at your usual meet uh, workplace for example and then have all the characters sidle in get them to describe how each one looks going around the table and then have them sat there for a few minutes on their own to either make introductions if the characters don't know each other and maybe to discuss, well, I've been called here because of this. And again, slowly start to lay those seeds as to why they're here and what's happening yeah. rather than just bam. I, I, I mean, I thoroughly like playing in games where bang happens, but running them, I, that's my, my default method. Is that yeah, there's slowly, a various slowly. variety of options here. I would pick up on something you said there of asking the players to describe their characters. Mm. And I think that's something I think we all do is is to go around the table and, you know, we've established what the setting is. You've got your player characters. You've read your background or you've talked about it. Okay, well, now let's just go around the table for a moment and just say a couple of things about who you are and what you look like and, the, you know, what you, what the other player characters would know about you. Keep it fairly brief. I think it serves a couple of functions again. One that it's often, in many games, it can be the first time that that player actually speaks. 
really mm-hmm. to the group. So a it gives them a chance to listen to somebody else apart from you as as GM kind of droning on, <laughs> um, and b as GM it kind of allows you to see has that player actually got a handle on what their character is like. Yes. It's pretty unusual that they don't. But it does but. happen. And another important aspect of this is the, the the social one, in that, you know, if you're playing at a club or playing online with a group of people you haven't played with before, or you're playing at a convention or something like that, you may be playing with a bunch of complete strangers. Personally, I'd like to start off any session like that with, you know, even before we get to the characters, introducing the players to each other and making sure that they know each other's names and you can, can identify with each other as human beings before they identify with each other as characters. Um, but, I mean, you can certainly combine the two. So far, we've discussed scene framing in media's res, which Scott tells me has an S on it, so it's in media's, not in media res. And Matt has, has mentioned the slowly building tension. So you just start with a fairly mundane setting and allow it to kind of build up and introduce elements to, to, of the plot well, into it. I, I think we should probably expand a little bit on what we mean by immediate res, though, because we gave an example of it, but we didn't really talk about it. So this whole idea of, of creating this situation and dropping the player characters in it, this isn't just something that you do in a convention game or a one-shot. I mean, it's quite a powerful way of starting a campaign. Certainly, for example, when I was running a pulp campaign, uh, which Matt played in, for each chapter I started it in <laughs> Medias Res, uh, just because it it felt right for the game. Uh, it felt right for pulp action. It meant that there was no dithering. It meant that things jumped right into the action. So that, you know, for example, I'd, I'd start off uh, a session with the player characters having broken into a Nazi base already, facing automatic gunfire, taking shelter behind a crate, and then suddenly re- reading the German for high explosive on the side of it. <laughs> 30 seconds ago, that crate looked a really inviting uh, place to take cover. <laughs> yes. That started off every session or every new chapter with yeah, I was about to say with a bang. But <laughs> oh, it did go bang. Repeatedly went yes. bang. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it set the tone and it got the action moving, which was exactly what I wanted. And if we started in a more gentle, you know, slowly building the tension way, it wouldn't have felt like Pulp Adventure. But it can just be something gentler, but you're putting them into the situation. So it could be if it's the reading of a will, which is, you know, that's not a high action scene not normally, uh, then, you know, it can be that, you know, you're all sat in the solicitor's office and he's just opening up the envelope yeah. as you start the action. But what I would generally do with a in media's res setting is I would sort of present that, but then I'll just take a step back for a moment and sort of say at, at some point, you know, you guys have turned up here. Is there anything you want to have, um, you know, brought along because we do, what we're cutting out is that that kind of tooling up and equipment lists phase of you know where the characters or sort of players are going through. So I'd sort of say, well, you know, if you want to have got something in advance, then you know if it's feasible, just tell me now, and you know that that that's cool. Another tool you can use though to cover that is flashbacks. So you could start off with that particular scene, and then you know if there's things that you wanted to establish beforehand, you could play a couple of flashback scenes, and then you know carry on with the main action. 
One technique I've seen you use quite a lot, Paul, is the amnesiac opening. This is like a, a an extreme version of the immediate res opening. It's sort of, you know, you're dumped in the middle of a situation and you don't even know who you are. Or at least you don't know what the situation is. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be full-blown amnesia. You just don't know how you got there. I find that a lot of fun. I like films that start with that. They're in a situation and they don't know how they got there. It's not necessarily that they're, they're amnesiac. It could just be that they were they were taken captive, they were drugged and they woken up somewhere. I mean, if we think of like the movie Saw, they don't know where they are or, or what the situation is. They just know they're chained in this in this room. And they've lost their key in the opening scene. Yes. <laughs> um, and one of the great things that that amnesiac setting opening does is it cuts that whole thing about uh, information dumps out at the start because all you yes. say is okay you open your eyes you wake up you're on a hard tiled floor you look around there's dim light and you can see some other people moving oh it's the other pcs you don't recognize them what go do you do? yeah and immediately people you know I'm, I'm really hooked in by that i love that kind of style you can't do it too often you know, once a week is probably enough, but, but the, it's not something you want to overdo. But and it's not something I, you know, take credit for creating at all. But it, it is, it's it's a lot of fun. Another technique I've used a couple of times is to use a short vignette at the start of a game, whether it be a one-off or a, a campaign. It might be that I give out brief player characters to the to the players um, and let them play out a scene. And this scene can be something really traumatic and dramatic. Uh, and maybe, you know, the players get killed in horrible ways. And then you say, OK, let's start the game properly now. And they don't really know how that, that little vignette actually links into the rest of the game. But it will become revealed over time. So it allows you to do both things. You can have like a Emilia's Res, high action, high octane scene at the start, perhaps. And then switch to a, a slow boil, slowly building tension kind of garden party or something, uh, or potentially the reverse. But it allows you to do two things there. Yeah, and it also allows you to establish the stakes, the dangers, without imperiling the characters that the players are likely to be playing long term. You know, if you want to show them, give them perhaps a little warning as to the way that their characters can die horribly if they make you know the wrong decision at some stage you do that with the disposable characters up front and then by the time they they start playing the characters they're invested in they'll be perhaps a bit more cautious yeah totally we see this in films i mean we see it in inception with that opening scene in inception where it's all kind of crazy and we don't really know what's going on well, once you've actually done that opening scene as well, or maybe as part of it, one thing that I, I feel fairly strongly about is that the players should start to develop an idea fairly quickly as to what it is their characters are expected to do or what the problem is that they face or what the danger is they face, what it is they're butting up against or what, you know, what opposition uh, they're going to expect. So that they're not just floundering around, they've got some direction at this stage. How much do you mean by revealing what they face? So what I want to feel as a player, I guess, and I want my players to feel as, as a keeper, is that they've got some motivation and I don't necessarily want them to know what's going on or no. what they're facing. No, no, I no. I just no, want them to have some sort of um, hook into the game. 
Yeah, that's not what I meant. I mean, so let's take the amnesiac opening as a result. Let's take one from a published Call of Cthulhu scenario. I won't say which one. But you wake up together somewhere in a you know, an underground location. You're not quite sure where it is. You've got some rough idea of what you were doing before this happened. Uh, things are a bit wrong. Obviously, the first thing, you know, the first problem you're facing there is to work out where you are, how you got there and find a way out. So, you know, that, that is fairly unequivocal. The, the, the players already know, or, or at least they've got some idea of something interesting they can do from the get-go. But equally, I'd be happy starting a game off at a garden party and not give any indication as to what the, the scenario is or the content of the scenario. As long as the player characters have got, they've perhaps just got some interpersonal conflicts which maybe don't really have anything to do with the scenario. But as long as there's enough there to give them a bit uh, of something to kind of talk about and start to build it up. I I think, yeah, that's fine. I've certainly done it a couple of times myself. I think the thing you've got to be careful about as a keeper or a GM is reading the table and working out at what point that stops becoming interesting so yes you know it could be a party i mean you know one of my scenarios lampposts in bloom starts out with a family barbecue and you know you're sitting around you've got four out of the five player characters who are sitting there in the family barbecue the only thing that's that's you've created tension in the opening minutes is the fact that one of the characters has just burnt the stakes this leads to a bit of bickering a bit of character interaction there's also stuff bubbling under the surface and that you know tends to lead to a bit of role playing and it, depending on the group it can be fun for about you know a minute or two some will run with it for about 10 minutes but you know there's something you know, that is immediately going to bring a problem into their lives and you know i time that for as soon as i see that bit flagging a burnt hamburger will bring anyone to a rage check straight away <laughs> and that really takes us in to the middle section of running the game because we're getting past the starting there. There's a lot to start in a game. And now it's time for... Ask Jackson. We've come around to that time of the show where we, as is duty-bound by being the earthly vessels of our good friend Jackson Elias, call upon him for some of his celestial wisdom, shall we say, to answer the queries and problems that befoul our troubled listeners and this week's question for jackson comes from tor nielsen dear jackson given that the world is fundamentally materialist and that any spark within us dies when the meat fails i must ask who are you really sincerely suspicious in scandinavia well, I think, first of all, this is a very reductive way of looking at it, Tor, because, you know, as, as Jackson will undoubtedly point out, the, there is plenty of precedent in the, the various missives that Lovecraft has left for us as to ways that people have transcended death that do not rely on anything as, as gaudy as the supernatural. You know, th- there's good solid science there. I, you know, our, our friend Herbert West has shown that death should not be a barrier. Um, you know, Joseph Kerwin was raised from essential salts by methods that some people may see as being sorcery, but you know, more refined minds may see the, the science that lies within. And 
Yeah, there, there are perhaps extraterrestrial means as well, as long as you're quite happy you know, living out your, your afterlife in, in a little metal cylinder. <laughs> I was just thinking he isn't dead. He's just dreaming. And the Yithians mm-hmm. seem to be able to move what makes us a person, our consciousness, through millions of years of time. That thing that they're moving is beyond the flesh, whatever it might be. And fundamentally, the universe is an unknowable place. I mean, just because you reject the idea that there is, you know, perhaps some godhead looking after us and, and you know, managing our existence beyond death, doesn't mean that there isn't some way that our consciousness can be preserved beyond our earthly state. The, the method may be unwholesome. We may end up floating through the ether like those things that the Tillinghast resonator shows us in our, our darkest, darkest dreams. But, yeah, it, we could still be out there somewhere. So I think, ultimately, the answer to this is multiple choice. Except the fact that Jackson is speaking to us from beyond the grave. And there are any number of unwholesome and horrendous means by which this could be happening, and and we hope that provides you with the comfort that you seek. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. As always, we want to say a big thanks to all our backers via Patreon. Now, we've got a couple of things that have come out or are coming out. We just released our first episode of The Weird Whisperings. This is a recording of one of H.P. Lovecraft's stories, the music of Eric Zahn, read by Scott Dorwood. Here's a small excerpt. I have examined maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue d'Assay. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change. I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into all the antiquities of the place, and have personally explored every region of whatever name which could possibly answer to the street I knew as the Rue de Say. But despite all I have done, it remains an humiliating fact that I cannot find the house, the street, or even the locality where, during the last months of my impoverished life as a student of metaphysics at the university, I heard the music of Eric Zahn. That recording is only available to backers. And another thing we're working on for our backers is a fanzine called The Blasphemous Home. Issue one came out at the end of last year, start of this year. And issue two is due out towards the end of 2016. We would welcome submissions from listeners. We're looking for something say around 500 words and related to the theme of horror lovecraft and cthulhu and we've got something particular in mind here that we would like to hear from you we would like examples of the most horrifying monsters you can think of and we're thinking of things that actually you know might give us the creeps so this could be anything that your wild and deviant imaginations can come up with Now, of course, there are a number of levels of horror. We can go for actually things that, you know, give us a sense of cosmic horror and dread. We can go for things that are just weird and disturbing. Or ultimately, we can just go for things that gross us out.
pitch it at whichever those three levels you can go for. But I guess what we'd really like to aim for is, is the first of those. Especially seeing as some of us are very difficult to gross out. Why are we all looking at Scott? There'll be a special <laughs> prize if you can gross Scott out. Now, we don't know what the prize is going to be yet, but there will be one, he says, with no idea what it'll be. But I'm sure we can come up with some sort of prize for the... Uh, for the, for the best entry and you know we'd, we'd aim to feature at least one of the entries in the blasphemous tome and if you want to include diagrams that'd be marvelous or photographs from life <laughs> <laughs> well thank you to each and every person who backs us on patreon we rely on the money you give us to pay for things like bandwidth costs and hosting and we really couldn't put this out without you so well thank you very much and we have a few new people to thank so our thanks go out to Henrik Arberin. Indeed, thank you very much, Henrik. Thank you, Henrik. So thank you to Kyle Barnes. Thank you very much, Kyle. Indeed, thanks, Kyle. And thank you very much to Brett Easterbrook. Hey, thank you very much, Brett. Thank you, Brett. And if you're new to the show, you may not know that when a backer pledges at the $5 level on Patreon to Uh-oh. the good friends of Jackson Elias, we have promised... To sing a thanks to them. Now, singing, you know, may not be our strong card, but... Hell no. <laughs> but but we, we do make strange noises with our mouths. And we record these and we do things with the strange noises. And this is the way by which we thank you. Thank you we put this at the end so you don't tune out early. <laughs> and this one goes out to Seth Biskind. Yes, thank you and brace yourself. Thank you. Thank you. conclusion our final thoughts about starting scenarios yeah i think there's a lot to say as we've found about how to start a game and once you start to analyze it there is a lot to sort of break down you know if you were briefing somebody on well a new role player which is something that we want to do to get more people into the hobby we don't want to overload them with with stuff as we've said but you know there's a lot of techniques in there to sort of running an effective start of a game and how you kick it off and if you've got other ideas that you use and things that we haven't mentioned then please do get in touch with us and let us know on social media or on the website and obviously there is no one right way to start a game we've covered a whole bunch of techniques that will suit different groups or different types of game and it's really just a question of mixing matching seeing what works for you seeing what your requirements are but if you choose the right techniques and if you deploy them well you will create a start to a game that people will talk about for years to come it's also one of the probably the most intimidating parts of of a game is getting that the start up and running if you can get over this hurdle then the rest is easy and i'd say also look at films and tv shows and how they start they often start with an establishing shot or a dramatic scene or whatever and just kind of consider how they've kind of led you into the story and introduced the characters something we didn't talk about that just struck me was the you'll get your friends around 
you haven't seen each other all week and you all start chatting and socializing that can go on for three or four hours and then you look at your watch and realize <laughs> oh it's uh, time to finish now we haven't actually played the game at all i've had that a few evenings yep. well, Been there, the, 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 the secret is to play with people you don't like <laughs> <laughs> there are some games with a, a written in um device in there like lighting a candle or some sort of um physical division between socializing and then like a switch okay we've done this thing we're all on board now now we're playing but i think we've spoken enough about beginnings for the time being as we mentioned earlier we will be doing upcoming episodes on middles and ends if you want to find out where to go from here join us soon yeah and really i think this show's been about trying to inspire you to think about how you start your games and if it gives you some ideas then that's great until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemoustomes.com Can I glare at you while you suck it?